Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar. Today's guest is Debbie Rigaud, author of the YA rom-com Truly, Madly, Deeply. Debbie joined me today to talk about the rejection journey being similar for scripts, magazine writing, and novels, as well as the importance of community, especially that of women in publishing looking out for one another. From the moment she first learned to read, literary genius Darcy Wells has spent most of her time living in the worlds of her books. But when Asher Fleet walks into her bookstore, Darcy can't seem to find the right words. Asher makes Darcy want to open up, but securing her own happily ever after will mean she'll need to stop hiding and start living her own truth, even if it's messy. The Library of Lost Things by Laura Taylor Namey. Most of my audience is comprised of aspiring authors, and they love to hear about how a published author attained their agent. So if you could talk about that, I'm sure that they would love to know your story. Odd to say, but I didn't have a querying journey. I had more of a pitching journey that lasted decades now. My secret dream back in the day was to become a TV writer. This was back when most people wanted to be film screenwriters. Mm -hmm. So my journey was more of a pitching journey. For um, book publishing, it was more of a circuitous one. I've had two literary agents. I started in magazine publishing in New York City, which felt remote, but sort of adjacent to book publishing world. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes you can find some overlap. And my first agent, the wonderful Adrienne Ingram, she's a full-time editor now. She was a colleague of a friend. She was working on an anthology for African-American and Latinx teens. That was back when a lot of teens were picking up because they related to the characters on the cover. They were picking it up, but it was, wasn't was age appropriate. A lot of times it was a lot erotica and things like that. So Adrienne was working on an anthology uh, with more age appropriate fiction because these readers were grossly underserved. She approached me to work on that. So my agent now is Laura Dale of Laura Dale Literary Agency. I have... Sarah Milanowski to thank for that. Now, I'm still pinching myself over this, but Lordale heard about me through Sarah and then asked to see my work. Nice. She's also Sarah's agent. I know. It's like, when does this ever happen? <laughs> <laughs> so I sent Laura a perfect shot, which was um, a rom-com I did. It was a Simon Pulse romantic comedy back in 2010. And that was when I was still with Adrian Ingram. And I also sent her Voila, open Mike is the name of the anthology that author Metallic Perkins was an editor Mm -hmm. of. It was about, you know, being an immigrant's kid. I actually was agentless when there was an open submission for Open Mic. They selected my story, Voila. And so I sent those to, to Laura and she connected with my writing style, my characters. Before that, I'd sort of been languishing in limbo land for years. Mm-hmm. Sarah doing this and, you know, just like out of the blue, I didn't even know. Sarah was kind of talking me up 
around town. It's been amazing ever since. So I've been with Laura since truly madly whirly. You had these connections through networking and through a relationship mm-hmm. with another author. I'm actually familiar with Sarah's work because I mm-hmm. uh, worked in a library, a middle school and high school library for about 14 years, and I still go back and I volunteer. So Sarah has just tons and tons of books, and mm-hmm. I'm familiar with her work. And then I'm also familiar with Open Mic because that's a book that we carry. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, it was a Junior amazing. Library Guild selection, correct? Yes. Oh, my God, yes. The crazy thing about it, and I, like, actually cried. My story, Voila, was republished this past spring in Scope Scholastic. Oh, yeah. Which is in middle school classes. They got an illustrator to create art for it, and they bought up little different topics of discussion for students Mm -hmm. and I was able to uh, do the audio version of it that they asked me to read so it was it was just I felt like it was like winning the lottery like they're like oh we've dug up your old story and we want to publish it that came just from me sort of seeing that you know they were looking for an additional uh, story to include and so I just took a chance and sent it in that's awesome. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was, you know, hustling. Exactly. <laughs> Just trying to keep myself out there. And and that's what meant, meant so much about Sarah, because I really saw it as sort of like women helping women. Mm-hmm. It's like, when does that happen where a woman comes up to you and says, I'd love to sponsor you. I'd love to talk about you. I'd love to like help mentor you. you have any questions? Those connections. It's important that we do that for each other. Absolutely. Women to yeah. women. We have to help each yeah. other out. We have totally. to. Totally. Even though you weren't necessarily having a query journey, you were certainly on a rejection journey in terms of pitching for 10 years. Talk a little bit, if you can, about the differences between as a screenwriter doing pitches and querying and yet the similarities in Land of Rejection. As a screenwriter, I was never in LA. I was always New York based. I did a different route. Like I'm always looking for a different route, trying to think outside the box. I was going to sort of the smaller production companies who sort of had straight to video type of um, stories and, and pitching them, looking at, you know, sort of their catalog of material, just the same as you would do for an agent you're interested in. Like who else does that person represent? How would my story fit in? If not, how can I tweak it? A lot of times they're like, great, this is great. You, you get a response from them and, and, and sometimes a positive response. But then there's a lot of wait and see in the screenwriting world. You might connect with someone, but then you might not hear back. It kind of never went anywhere. The rejection I always related to, I caught a bus. I caught two city buses to mm-hmm. go to school. I would always like it would be cold and we'd be standing at a bus stop and you'd see a bus in the distance and you're <laughs> like, yes. And then as it gets closer, you realize it's not your bus number. Oh. But the way I saw it was, well, I was grateful for the time that I thought it was mine. It kept me feeling, you know what? This, you know, sub-zero degree weather, I could do this. Yeah, sure, you get disappointment when you realize it's not yours. But hey, for the last few minutes, you weren't thinking about it. That's right. And then here comes another bus. Those are the tricks that I use with myself. It's wild when you hear oh, it's been X amount of years. You're like, has it been? It it doesn't feel like that because you find other things to keep you going. You know, I was always working full time. I was always doing things that interest me on the side, freelancing, and you're making connections all the while. You're building relationships. Those relationships, talking to other people, particularly like women, 
black people, you know, and just like, mm-hmm. oh, hey, how are you holding up? How's it going? What's your next move? I love discussing career moves with people. I think it's so inspiring. I guess, you know, buckle up for the journey, <laughs> not the destination. And those glimmers of hope, those are the things that keep you going, even when it's not Heck your yeah. boss. I love the analogy. Heck yeah. <laughs> no, because I would get rejections. I was querying for like 10 years and I would get rejections, but they were complimentary rejections. And they would say, right. you're a good writer. You're going to make it. Mm-hmm. This particular book mm-hmm. isn't working for me or the genre has passed for the time. Mm-hmm. And I would just be like, right. oh, but that's awesome. Right. And yeah, but that's awesome. Oh, man, you wouldn't believe like how unprepared I was even when I did get it. like I remember being invited to <laughs> this is crazy, but I I got invited to Penguin, like to come in and sit down and mm-hmm. talk. <laughs> and I was so unprepared. I was unaged on the strength of something that I sent in mm-hmm. that they're like, this is amazing. But just contracting with someone on a book very similar to yours. Yeah. But co- do come in. Let's chat. I was actually in there, like yeah. sitting down, yeah. talking to top editors. And I had no clue how tough that was to have that access. I didn't I didn't even realize. And also, I'm from magazine publishing, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of rejection there. Like, there's a lot of pitching that goes on there. Mm-hmm. Even if you're on staff, you know, I was on staff, and I'd pitch something, and that we, we get rejected just part of this writing life that I'd chosen. That's how I chalked it up to. Absolutely. Rejection forms a callus and you have to have those calluses. <laughs> you have to have that resilient. Yes, absolutely. You have to have the resilience and those little glimmers yeah. of hope. They keep you going. And and other women and other writers, um, it's, it's interesting. You mm-hmm. mentioned how much you love just sitting around and talking about the business or talking about your next yeah. move or their next move. And yeah. it, it's so funny that you say that because I find that so often. Even the writers that are like my really good friends, when we are together mm-hmm. physically, we're not talking about our kids or our families, whatever's going on in our personal lives. Like, we'll touch on it. But most of the time, we're talking mm-hmm. about the industry. We're talking about what's going on in yep. the industry. We're talking about what yep. our next moves are, what the hot genre is, what's going on right. at this imprint. Right. It's so Right, because we don't have a water cooler, it. do we? We exactly. don't have a water cooler where we're going to meet up. <laughs> we don't, we're not in the office spaces. Exactly. So when we get together, that's why we find each other and just like mm-hmm. commiserate. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason I started this podcast, because I was thinking one day as I sat speaking with other authors and we were just talk, 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 talking. And it was all business talk. I was like, man, as an aspiring author, I could have sat in and just listened to this conversation. I would have learned mm-hmm. so much. And so that's part of yes. why I started this podcast, just to have those conversations mm-hmm. for the purpose of mm-hmm. other people learning from them. Coming up, why a YA rom-com might be exactly what some readers need. Join Lexi McGill and her team as they teleport around the world solving STEM-based puzzles to win the annual science tournament. Castles, museums, and labyrinths await as they attempt to stay on course, avoid sabotage, and outwit their competition. In the end, Lexi must decide how far she's willing to go to win and who her real friends are. With riddles to solve and messages to decode, this interactive read won't disappoint. Lexi McGill and the Teleportation Tournament by Kim Long. So you mentioned your YA rom-com, Truly Madly Royally. That came out this summer. Tell us a little bit about that book, but then also 
It's a YA rom-com, and the world that we're in right now just feels so bleak. So talk a little right. bit about that book, what it's about, and then tell us what you think the role is of lighter stories in the world that we're living in today. Well, Truly Madly Rarely, yes, came out in July. It's a rom-com inspired by Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. <laughs> <Nice>. So. <laughs> happens when a girl meets a prince. The girl is the African-American girl and the prince is Prince of Landerol, fictional European country. Zora meets Owen at a prestigious university. So it's a summer program for high school students. And she's taking classes on philanthropy, on grant writing, because she has big plans for her organization to help these kids in her community that are very small and they often walk to school alone. And mm -hmm. so she has a program called the Walk Me Home program. It has to navigate her desires, the reason she's there, versus sort of falling for someone who sort of comes with a circus. It's a bit of a risk there. There's a wedding at the end because his big brother is getting married to a lovely lady and she gets to go to that royal wedding. It's a rom-com and I hear you in a world where everything does seem bleak, but I can only offer my life as an example. Being hit with never-ending depressing news cycles, mm -hmm. you can see it weaving the most negative and scary narrative of the country. This isn't news for me. Like hearing intense debates, divide families, and passionate discussions about politics isn't new for me. My parents immigrated to Brooklyn from Haiti in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in the 80s and 90s at a time when baby docs exit, AIDS being blamed on Haitians, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Always boatloads of desperately fleeing Haitians flashed on the news. And of course, in school, I get asked questions. A lot of times they're ignorant, yeah. many times unkind, like deliberately unkind. And through this, I begin to see sort of the importance of not only telling stories that are tough to hear, but like enjoyable to hear. It's important to acknowledge the entirety of a person's experience. In terms of using lighthearted stories in tough times, I use my mom as an example. She was a hopeful person who used humor to tell a lot of tough stories. The way that she did this, you know, it revealed so much of her layers to me, her emotional intelligence. It kept me hopeful too. Truly Madly Rorley is a light entertaining, but it also touches on tough topics, like self-love, racism. Mm -hmm. Get that from her because that was our coping mechanism. When you're writing for young people, I sort of approach it how a nurse once told me. When I went through a tough medical journey, she was like, guard your heart. I was close to letting that harden my heart. When you write for young people, you don't want to harden their hearts. Obviously, you want to keep those glimmers of hope that we talked about. And so most stories in YA middle grade literature, which is why I love it, is like even if they are heavy reads, we offer those glimmers of hope. We take up that mantle of guarding the hearts of young people. I love that. I love that idea of guarding the hearts. And I agree with you completely that we do need those lighter stories. We always need them. Like right now, the national cycle, of course, is just completely batshit crazy and terrible. Right. And it has right. been for years. But like you're saying, it's always been bad somewhere for someone at all times. There's okay. always someone out there struggling. There's always something terrible happening to someone. Having all of those escapes open for anyone at any time is so important. And those light right. reads, I think, you know. I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important not to judge someone for opting those those reads because mm -hmm. you don't know their spirit. Some people like to judge you from the face of things. I'm a smiley girl. You know, I, I can break out in song, but they don't know what I've been through. It's not that it, it's irresponsible sometimes when someone does step away from it. For example, I was talking to my brother-in-law the other day who's like always on top of every new story. And he was just like, oh, 
I took a break. I was Mm -hmm. like, wow. But he's allowed that. You're talking about not shaming people for what they're reading. You're absolutely right about that. Um, I remember when e-readers first came out, how relieved and happy romance readers were because they could read their books in public and no one was looking at the cover and no one was judging them. Isn't that kind of sad? Doesn't that hurt? Like, isn't that sad? Yes, it is sad. No one should ever be judged by what they're reading. That's ridiculous. I feel really sad when you just said that. I was like, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'll read anything. I, I really enjoy just about anything. I'm honestly not much of a romance reader, but I will read mm-hmm. a lighter, like a beach read or, and even the term beach read though is dismissive in itself, yeah. right? Yeah. But, but it's, it's just like, you know, I'll listen to anything. Mm-hmm. You could like laugh at the stuff that I listen to. Sometimes I'm in the mood to be, you know, like, yo, I mean, I listen to anything, you know, it depends on what I'm in that mood for at Mm -hmm. the time. And it just feeds me at that time. Everybody's going through a journey and you need that nourishment, however you can get it to get you through. You need to see that a bus is coming, even if it's not your bus. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so if a light read gets you there right now. Go for it. You know, yes. Every winter I try to read a really heavy book, like a thick book, like a classic. I try to tackle a classic because mm-hmm. I just feel that that responsibility. And most of the time, I really do enjoy <laughs> them. Over the past couple of years, I've read War and Peace. I read Les Mis. I read... Wow. Yes. That's great. Moby Dick. That's what I read last year. I read Moby Dick. Moby Dick? Dick? Yeah. Moby Dick. And you know what? I actually you know, liked I it. I think that's a challenge for me. A lot of Nigerian literature, that's a good thing to challenge myself with, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's cool that you did that. Yeah. I, do, I like to have a big, heavy book to read in the winter, you know, when the wind is blowing around <laughs> outside and it's like, I'm going to sit down with this big, heavy book in my comfy bed and I'm going to mm-hmm. read this. My nightstand is always kind of like, I don't know, schizophrenic. There's so many different things sitting there. And That's it's because so cool. I might just, you know, sometimes you really don't want to pick up War and Peace. You're just not there. I relate to that so hard. And I think that that just part of the complexity of being human. My iTunes, you look through it, you got some War and Peace equivalents in there. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got some Twilight equivalents in there, you know. Totally. So as it should be. It's just how it goes. Lastly, writing tough topics and co-authoring with activist Alyssa Milano. Well, you talked about some of your work that has more of a uh, weightier tone because you don't shy away from tough topics. You contributed to the YA anthology Dear Bully. And your essay Mm -hmm. in that is about not being a passive bystander. So Mm -hmm. what led you to that essay and why do you think that message is important? There was a lot of things spotlighted in the news cycle about young people being victims to being bullied. And so we said, you know, as, as writers of young people, we wanted to contribute. I'm still close to my high school bestie. She mentioned something that happened to her that I played a role in, like uh, in defending her. And I did not remember. So she told me about it is when I started recalling it. I didn't even remember and I played a part in it. And she said that it meant a lot for her at the time, and that's how we became friends, is that I spoke up for her. Mm-hmm. And now with her, it, this this story deals with issues of colorism. She's a chocolate, gorgeous, dark-skinned woman at the time in high school, you know, and she was called out for being dark-skinned. Mm-hmm. And also, um, it also dealt with bias against um, immigrants. She's Jamaican, and she said that her friends would call, and then maybe her mom would 
pick up back in the day when we had, when we had landlines. Right, right. <laughs> um, and they would say, how come she has an accent and kind of drag her for that? These are stuff that is damaging to spirit. It took her a while, she said, to come to a position of self-appreciation, self-love. She wants more kids to know about this. The challenge is that we face particularly in, within the African-American community with colorism. As for me, you know, I was like this skinny kid. I just was cool with everyone because I feel like at the time as a kid, I was like, okay, you got to be able to defend yourself. This is East Orange, New Jersey. You got to be able to fight. I'm the skinny girl. I feel like being cool with people, it was my defense mechanism, which is a shame because it's hard to break out of the people pleasing, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't more so like people pleasing was more so like, like I was just being cool. You know, that was my way of doing things. I was not the type of person to like mouth off or anything. Mm-hmm. But apparently at the time she said that I spoke up for her. It kind of just highlighted how uncool it was to talk about her at school. And hearing that, I was like, I did that? <laughs> Skinny little me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wrote it to say sort of like, you just never know what you, what you can do to help another person, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to using your voice against this if skinny old me using my defense mechanism by being friendly is somebody like me who doesn't like to get into physical skirmishes mm-hmm. can speak up on it and use your voice in a way that gets a message across, then maybe more can. And I love what you're saying, too, that for her, this was a life changing moment for her. Mm-hmm. This opened up a door where she was like, oh, people shouldn't talk about me this way. Yet for you, it was just like, hey, you were just like, hey, that's not cool, man. Right. Like mm-hmm. you didn't even remember it. And but thought, it was and a think small about it. thing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's right. not like you beat somebody up in her defense no. or anything. You just spoke up. That's it. Right. Right. I didn't even have my spinach that day. I probably didn't. You know, I was like <laughs> coming around. Like, if someone like me can do it, maybe consider, you know, like yeah. speaking up. It just took a voice and someone pointing it out and saying that right. is not okay. So I want to talk about another project of yours. You co-wrote Hope Project Middle School with activist Alyssa Milano. So tell me about that co-authoring experience. How did you land that job? And what was it like to work with such a high-profile co-author? It's been a thrilling experience. Very fast-paced. So Truly Madly Royally is a point paperbacks book. Uh, my editor, who's just amazing, um, Amy Friedman, is there. So point is Scholastic. It's a Scholastic mm-hmm. imprint. And so is Hope. Hope is a Scholastic book. They reached out after Truly Madly Royally approached me from that. So this was thanks to Truly Madly Worley being talked about within Scholastic, that these editors thought I'd be a great fit for this project. That's how they got me on board. When I came on, the project was already underway. And Alyssa Milano, she's just like a skilled storyteller. You know, she's read a gazillion scripts. She's also written books before. She's written about her love of baseball, like super intuitive about characters. If I could just say, like, Hope has a lot in common with Alyssa. I think she's she just has this big heart and she leads with it. We all know about her activism. It was interesting to find out, like, you know, her activism started when she herself was just a, a tween or teen. Ryan White, a kid who contracted AIDS um, through a blood transfusion. Elton John called her and said, Ryan is a fan of yours, so can you just let him give you a kiss on your cheek? And she said, sure. And, you know, she's been an activist since then. 
Hope Project Middle School, so Hope is a series, is basically like a mini activist. She's an 11-year-old middle schooler. She's passionate about science, and she's also navigating entering middle school, mm-hmm. having her friend go a different direction with, with some of her classes, and so having to st- sort of stand up on her own. And so the first book in the series is about her finding her voice. I and mean, the next book in the series is just about her helping out a dog shelter that is closing down. It sort of walks readers through these steps of like how to be an activist in a way that a young reader would understand. And then there's Eric Keyes, who is the amazing artist. He's the illustrator. And then we're backed by such a, a cool team at Scholastic. Really one of those projects that brings a lot of the joy into writing. We're actually working on the third book. It's going to be a series of four books coming out every six months. And the first one comes out mid-October and then the next one in April. Lastly, what are you working on now and where can listeners find you online? Aside from working on Hope, I'm working on revisions for a YA rom-com. This one is closer to home. It's called An Arranged Proms Working Title. It's sort of like my big fat Greek wedding for prom. fun, 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 fun. (laughs) It's about, you know, Haitian-American girl. It's prom season's here. She goes to an all-girls school and her parents set out to arrange a prom. This is actually taken from a page in my life where my eldest sister had her prom arranged. It's a lot of fun, and I'm hoping that the revision goes well. And where can listeners find you online? I'm a little bit more active on Instagram. Mm-hmm. My Instagram is fro and a bow. So that's how I used to have my daughter's hair. Adorable. <laughs> like F R O A N D A B O W. I'm also at Debbie Go on Twitter. And I try to blog once in a while, but yeah. It's tough, <laughs> man. It's tough. Believe me. Oh, you're, please, I know. you're talking. Your blog is looking good. Oh, thank you. But it's not easy. I'm like, I spend basically <laughs> my whole Sunday is for the blog oh and the goodness. podcast. Like the whole day is just set aside to do that. So, well, I appreciate your time because it's, it's a great blog. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that you appreciate it because <laughs> sometimes it just feels like you're just throwing stuff out in the void. But if I know people are reading and people are listening, then and I'm, I'll keep doing it. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.